Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Hello and welcome to Hysteria. I'm Erin Ryan. This week, Professor Kimberly Crenshaw, Alyssa Mastromonaco, Kieran Deal, and Grace Parra join me to tackle the following questions. How can we keep police violence against black women from being pushed from the headlines? How does the fight for racial justice translate to the workforce? And what should we replace all the cop shows with? All this and more right now. We're doing things a little bit different this week. Instead of news, we have a one-on-one conversation between me and a person who, if you don't know her name, you definitely know her work. It's Professor Kimberly Crenshaw. She's a professor of law at the University of California, Los Angeles, and Columbia Law School. And she is most well-known for introducing and developing the theory of intersectionality. Intersectionality is the theory of how intersecting social identities, particularly of minority groups, relate to societal systems and structures of oppression and discrimination. And it is extremely important to understand, especially at this particular historical moment that we're living in right now. Professor Crenshaw also founded the Columbia Law School's Center for Intersectionality and Social Policy Studies and co-founded the African-American Policy Forum. And you can listen to her podcast, Intersectionality Matters, wherever you find podcasts. I highly recommend it. Without further ado, Professor Crenshaw. Hi, Professor Crenshaw. How are you? I am great. I'm like beyond delighted that you're here with me today. I I'm, just... I'm pretty excited too. Wow. Have you been doing this all morning? Well, we have a, we record every Wednesday morning. So we did the main part of the show early and then I took okay. a break and I had a snack. I've been like eating gross food since when lockdown started, I was like, I'm going to make recipes every day. Like, oh, pinto bean stew with a little bit of like kale in it. Yeah. And now today, what I had for breakfast was an English muffin with Thousand Island dressing on it. Oh, I, I, I'm, <laughs> I thought for sure I had you beat a hands down. I still think I do, but okay. close. So I've been eating Cheez-Its. I get the big... <laughs> Box, not the little ones, a big box from Costco. So when I started, I'm going to get on my Peloton every day. I'm going to be cooking every day. So I did it for like three weeks. And then I discovered Costco delivers. What? Yes. Yes. So I got the big box of Cheez-Its and I got, and then, and then once I went off the, you know, carb farm, I just lost it. So then I got a big (laughs) uh, jar of chocolate covered raisins and a big bag of uh, dried cherries. So breakfast for me is a handful (laughs) of Cheez-Its and a handful of those together. And it's like this, it's insane. (laughs) Thank you so much for being with me today. I really, really appreciate you and I really admire your work. Um, Our listeners all are passingly familiar with the term intersectionality. Um, You coined it in 1989 and now it's so ubiquitous um, that it's kind of impossible to imagine having a conversation about race, gender, power, sexuality without 
employing intersectionality. So mm. your ideas were like decades ahead of the mainstream. Do you ever feel a little bit like a Cassandra? Like if you had a, <laughs> a family crest, would you write told you on the family crest? <laughs> I need to consider that. That's, that's, that's wonderful. Well, you know, I tell you one thing that I saw the other day, someone tweeted, you know, I find it amazing that Sandy Locks is still alive, <laughs> which made me go, what? So that's the, that's the flip side of it. You know, uh -huh. people say, you know, this, this term has been around for a long time, you know, 1989. And I forget that to me, 1989 is okay. It was when I was starting my career, but to a lot of people using and listening to intersectionality, it was like, you know, ancient history. And wow, she still walks and breathes among us. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> so oh, the Cassandra man. thing is a better one than this one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how do you, knowing that you're right about something as important as this, how do you keep the faith and wait for everybody to catch up to you? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I feel like everything that I do is, is just amplifying the sisters who were doing it before me, um, you know, bringing new tools to that work and bringing a legal background to black feminism. But I more or less see it as um, uh, sort of honoring the, 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 the struggles and uh, the uh, thoughts uh, of so many black women who weren't uh, fortunate enough to be able to be a law professor, uh, but thought uh, critical things about law, weren't uh, free to be able to think the thoughts that they wanted because they were taking care of someone else's family, but they had this sensibility. So in a sense, I, I see it as really not a choice. Um, uh, if, if I am to be about uh, this work be about lifting up the demands for, you know, freedom and justice and accountability there, there, you know, it, it's, it's like you just do it because you've been blessed with the, the platform to do it on because of their struggles. So mm -hmm. I just see it as taking the baton and doing my lap. Mm -hmm. um, speaking of uplifting, this is a, a little bit of a, uh, more serious topic. Um, the African-American policy forum launched the say her name hashtag in 2015. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the origin of the hashtag and progress you've seen around the hashtags goals? Yes. Yeah, so, um, I have to go back really to 2014 because that's when I, uh, received an, um, an email from uh, one of my mentors, Barbara Onwine, saying, you've got to look at this. And she sent me a clip of a funeral procession involving a black woman, uh, uh, Fran Garrett, who was taking her daughter, Michelle Cusso's coffin to the Phoenix City Hall. And I, I had no idea that Michelle Cousseau had been killed by the police who were sent to her home for a mental health order, pickup order. And rather than leaving her be when she said she was okay, one of the police officers scaled her fence, encountered her in her vestibule. And because of the look that he said she saw, he saw on her face, he thought that his life was in danger. So within seconds of encountering her, he shot her through the heart, killing her. Oh. While Fran was on the phone, 
trying to talk to the police so she could talk to her daughter. We've got this under control. And they killed her. And yeah. so in, in Fran's way, um, we call her the godmother of say her name. She said, you know, somebody's going to recognize that they killed my daughter. And so that prompted that protest. Now, mind you, this happened within weeks of Mike Brown. Mm -hmm. um, so while the world was talking about Mike Brown, Fran was trying to say, and Michelle Cousseau, and Michelle Cousseau. So we decided that we were going to lift up Michelle Cousseau's name when we went to the Eric Garner, Mike Brown protests. Um, and we were going to lift up the names of other black women who had also been killed by the police. So literally say her name came from the chant say her name, you know, mm -hmm. this big poster with all these black women's names. And, and I, I think that some part of that moment that was galvanizing for us in the uh, policy forum, was just seeing the very reactions to it. Like we, we finally just got out of the march and stood on the scaffolding with this long poster it had like 12 names on it. And some people marching by, you know, would give us the big ups. Um, like, yeah, say their names too. Some would come and stand in front of the poster and take pictures because, you know, what, what do you do when you see something you've never seen before? So they took pictures. And a few, a few were annoyed. A few were like, where are the men? We're like, the men are on every other poster in this 100,000 person march. Mm -hmm. This is the one poster that has pictures of women. So we decided that we really needed to turn it from a chant in a march to a hashtag to um, sort of hold uh, people's demands that women's names be said and then to pull uh, into conversation mothers of women who were killed by the police. So that's when we started bringing the mothers together. Most of them didn't know that they weren't the only one because no one mm -hmm. talks about black women killed by the police. Mm -hmm. So they have been able to administer to each other in a way that even they say their families aren't really able to hold the particularity of their grief. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned Michelle Cousseau, who um, wasn't a household name at the time of her death and in the aftermath. But, you know, fast forward to today and we have Breonna Taylor being recognized and spoken of a lot. Do you see that as progress that the hashtag is making? And how much further do we have to go in fully recognizing Black women who have been um, victims of violence at the hand of, hands of police? Well, it's certainly uh, hard not to acknowledge that uh, at this point, um, you're just as likely to hear a Black woman's name, Breonna Taylor's name, as not. So we're, we're getting a little closer. Uh, but um, you know, even the inclusion of her name, you know, creates this uh, drumbeat where it's men, 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 men. So we don't hear Michelle Casso, Natasha uh, McKenna, um, India Kager, India Beatty. You know, so all of these women have killed have been killed during the time that Tamir Rice or Philando Castillo you know, were killed. So, so they're not being spoken. And then we get to Brianna. So, and, and, and sometimes Sandy Bland gets, gets in, but, um, there is at least the possibility that Brianna's name is being mentioned now in part because it comes 
uh, with so many other black death happening at the same time. So, you know, you have Philando Castile, you have Ahmed Aubrey. Um, so um, it is a contemporaneous death. And so her name gets lifted in this moment. Um, the real question is, is this moment going to broaden the conceptualization of what anti-black police violence looks like? Is it going to... Um, uh, is it capacious enough to see black death at the hands of the police across gender, as opposed to inserting one black woman's name into a frame that's still largely uh, focused on generating understanding and intervention on behalf of black men? That mm -hmm. is absolutely important. And I find I always have to say, inserting black women into a framework that isn't initially about them is not enough. We have to broaden the framework. So I have to say that, and I also have to say, this is not pushing black men out of our attention. It is making sure that we recognize all the ways that black people are at risk. And black women are at risk in ways that are the same as black men, and sometimes in ways that are different. So the important thing is seeing if this movement is able to sustain that. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about this current moment, because, you know, you have been involved in injustice and race and gender for a while. Um, does it, this one feel different to you? And if so, how? So there are a couple ways that this one feels different. Um, I think the sustainability of it, I mean, you know, this has gone on for now, you know, a few weeks and the, the, the outrage is palpable. Um, it is uh, deeply interracial. Uh, we haven't seen interracial movements uh, building like this since, heck, uh, the anti-war movement, you know, uh, before most of your listeners' lifetimes that I was alive. But um, <laughs> so uh, it is, uh, it's generating some conversation across racial experience that we can only hope is galvanizing and sustainable. The other thing that is uh, new, um, exacerbating the problem is the fact that the police are performing in real time precisely the behaviors that the protest is moving against. So, you know, I remember when, uh, when the Rodney King uh, beating happened and a lot of us were really hoping that for once there would be a serious uh, consequence for the officers because there it is on tape. Everybody can see it. What's there to argue about? They beat a man senseless. And those officers got acquitted, right? So it did tell us that it's not just about whether they believe they do it to us, right? Because... You saw that. They were able to come up with justifications that that Simi Valley jury was willing to credit and let them off. Fast forward to this moment. The police aren't just beating Black people. They're beating everybody. They are firing tear gas into crowds uh, involving, you know, people of all races and all age and all ages and all genders. They're, you know, rolling over a 75-year-old man and leaving him on the ground to bleed out in uh, Buffalo and then doubling down on any effort to make the two responsible for that uh, accountable. So we're seeing in real time, this is bringing out the worst. 
right? So they can't say, well, that was an exceptional situation like Rodney King, or they mm-hmm. can't say it they, that, that was just De- uh, Derek Chauvin, just bad apples. It's, it, they can't say that because we're seeing it. So mm-hmm. my hope is that that is indelibly edged, etched into people's uh, consciousness so that when this dies down or when, you know, tokenistic efforts to provide a few reforms that don't go to the heart of the problem are offered up, people go, no, uh-uh. I, I remember, I saw the police shooting at journalists. I saw uh, the president march out of the White House after a tear gas blitz of innocent people to hold a Bible upside down in, in front of a church. I saw that. I know that I'm not going to be satisfied with anything less than a thorough restructuring of American policing as we know it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting now. It's like, you know, when Rodney King was beaten by the police, there was one video camera and now everybody has one. Yes. Um, how do you think social media has made real justice and change within reach in a way that it hasn't been before? I think that if that video of George Floyd's murder hadn't existed, that would have just been another statistic filed under law enforcement. Uh, The reality is that there is an ideology around law enforcement and there's a material reality around law enforcement. Now the ideology gets there first in this country. Um, the belief that the police are there to protect us against the marauding masses. The, the idea that the only thing that stands between us and utter and total chaos is police. And anytime you put any constraint on the police, whether it's a realistic constitutional constraint or a, a constraint that says, you just can't go barging into people's homes because you're looking for drugs and no-not warrants when you could well end up killing people. Any constraint on that ideologically is a constraint on our safety. That's the that's why police are the only institutions that really, like the military, don't really have to worry about their budgets being cut because they know we got this. Americans <laughs> believe that they need us to protect them. That's the ideology. The reality is this other thing, that people get killed over minimal things like being accused of passing a $20 bill. I mean, George Floyd died over a $20 bill. Um, Eric Garner over selling Lucy's on the street. So there is a reality that many people's encounter with police end up being violent and ultimately fatal over minimal kinds of things, little Mm -hmm. kinds of things. So um, social media is able to capture that uh, minimalism, right? All you have to do is jaywalk and here come the police and that can uh, turn into a deadly encounter. It's so outrageous that it's hard to actually write it down. People don't believe it when they see it in words. So Mm -hmm. social media has not only allowed um, uh, observers, witnesses to create a living record of it, then they've been able to amplify it again and again and again. And I think it's that capturing and amplification that's potentially changing the equation on on policing. Mm -hmm. Um, It seems like, you know, the last couple of weeks, there's been, you know, this uprising. People have been protesting and taking to the streets, a lot of them for the first time. And a lot of them people that you wouldn't necessarily expect. I have uh, an old boss who's a full-on Republican who I was 
shocked posting like NAACP police reform talking points. Yeah. Um, How do we sustain this going forward? How do we keep people engaged in making a positive change to the way that policing works? Yeah, that's that's remarkable. First of all, I have to say. Um, So, you know, I I know that's the question that everybody's asking. I think you'll have as many different answers as people who ask the questions. Um, But, you know, I start with uh, your surprise at your boss. Right. So um, for them, I think credible people have to constantly stay engaged with them. Credible people. Um, and, and, and the interrogation, you know, that, that needs to happen across the board of everyone. What is it that you didn't know before this moment that we Mm -hmm. need to make sure you continue to be informed about, right? Because you saw, you, you knew people were getting killed. I mean, it's always reported. Did you not know that they're getting killed about simple things like a $20 bill? Um, did you not know that a uh, police casually do it hand in the pocket? Like there's not a human being under them. Um, whatever you didn't know, we we've got, we've got the answers. If you want to see how uh, vicious and inhumane people can be uh, to one another, uh, let me tell you about Natasha McKenna, a black woman who was tasered to death while handcuffed to a chair and hooded. And what was her crime? she was having a a schizophrenic episode right six six white hazmat clad police officers took this nude five foot and change black woman out of a cell and tasered her to death right so Mm -hmm. what is it that you're not knowing is this a communication problem is it Mm -hmm. you don't see it okay well then we'll make sure that you do see it or is it that you see it and you've come up with justifications for it well let's talk about these justifications and actually make it clear that our approach to policing really isn't about uh keeping everybody safe uh, that's never what policing has been in this country. And, and frankly, the way policing is framed as a war, a war on drugs, a war on crime, it turns police not into safety enhancing, uh, but life depriving institutions. And if we need to continue to talk about that, let's do that. So um, I think this is like a moment where the, the window of the, fa- the, the facade has been cracked. It will quickly you know, repair itself unless we continue to punch it out and bring people more clearly into the reality of what's happened. So I think that's number one. And number two, we've got to get um, uh, a clear uh, reformist agenda around which there are real consequences for people that we elect who don't follow that agenda. So we need mm-hmm. a robust embrace of the idea that there should be no chokeholds, robust embrace of the idea that the police shouldn't be the only profession that can really hide uh, their wrongdoing behind qualified immunity. We could go on and on, um, and we should, but having a list without the willingness to make the failure to embrace the list politically consequential for the people we support, that list won't do any good unless we actually muscle up and say we really mean it. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I don't want to take too much more of your time. This has been a great conversation, and it's always good to hear from you. But um, final question. This is kind of a a fun one, I guess. Um, part of the conversation, like a minor B plot in the conversation, has been the uh, idea that police are often the protagonists in stories in American television and movies. 
Um, and I feel like right now there's sort of a feeling that we can't really make those shows anymore. What do you think we should be replacing police procedural shows with like a procedural about like public defenders or like what, what would be your vision? Oh my goodness. Yeah. Well, I would, I would love a show. This isn't going to be surprised at all. I would love a show about the survivors of, of police uh, violence, the, the struggles that they have for accountability. I'd love legal Eagles, um, you know, who come in and say, Yes, there's qualified immunity, but we can figure out a way to make the police department stop using chokeholds. I'd love a, a, a series about, you know, uh, sort of built off the Golden Girls, but it's, it's the mothers of women who, you know, the main thing that holds them together is that they're fighting for justice for their daughters. Um, sort of shift the center of gravity so we're not simply seeing police as, you know, heroes and the, and the justice system to just be there to do their bidding, uh, but uh, people as the heroes of their own lives and lifting up their struggles for justice and hopefully showing some victories. How good would that feel to see some stories about, you know, mothers of, of daughters who lost their lives to actually you know, having apologies and, and, and having their, their grandchildren cared for for the rest of the lo their lives. That would be exciting for me. That would be must-see TV for me. Yeah, I think I'd watch all of those shows. They sound <laughs> they sound great. I was already trying to cast them in my mind. I was like, okay, who would be in the show about the four moms? But honestly, yes. you should you should pitch it. Pitch it. Someone Well, anyone <laughs> it would get out me. there, anyone out there listening, we're we're pitching this show. And if you want to see what these mothers are like and and just see the the beautiful connection they have, um tune in to Under the Black Light because they're all going to be on our show next Wednesday at 8 on Zoom, 8 Eastern. What? Okay, yeah. it's a great podcast. If Thank you're not, you. If you haven't listened already, you should definitely listen. It is, it's a really, really, it's a good listen. Um, Professor Crenshaw, thank you so much. I really appreciated this talk and um, take care of yourself. Get, get some rest. Stop eating those Cheez-Its, right? Yes, no more, <laughs> no more hand-based meals. <laughs> All Same right. To you. Thanks for Thank having you. me on. Bye. Bye-bye. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, personal political, and I'm joined by my panel. This episode is brought to you by IQ Bar. Power up your life with superior brain and body nutrition products from IQ Bar. Their plant protein bars are the perfect low-carb breakfast. Their IQ Mix Zero Sugar Hydration Drinks replenish electrolytes. And their IQ Joe Mushroom Coffees will keep you focused all day long. Start each day right with IQ Bar's brain and body boosting bars, hydration mixes, and mushroom coffees. Their ultimate sampler pack includes all three. IQ Bar empowers doers with superior brain and body nutrition. All their products are entirely free from gluten, dairy, soy, GMOs, and artificial sweeteners. And today, Hysteria listeners get an exclusive offer of 20% off plus free shipping. Just text HYSTERIA to 64000. One thing I love about IQ Bar is, first of all, right now it's really dry where I am. Oh, okay. It is hard for me to stay hydrated. I, I just like, I, I'll just be going through my day and I'll be like, why am I so like... Parched. I'm parched. I'm in a bad mood. I feel like I'm going to pass out. And it's, ah, you got to drink some water. You got to stay hydrated. I really like their IQ Mix Zero Sugar Hydration Drinks because it allows me to 
rehydrate myself at a time when I feel like the atmosphere is trying to take all my moisture away. Well, and sometimes you need more than just water. Sometimes you need more more than just water. I also love IQ bars because I love a portable breakfast. I love a grab-and-go breakfast, no dishes. Love something I can walk around holding and eating. I like something I can eat in my car without endangering the lives of me and every other motorist on the road. A breakfast burrito, <laughs> not, not the safest thing to eat behind the wheel. IQ bar, go ahead and do it. Good for you. Great ingredients. Helps you... Stay focused and alert throughout the day, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, and you don't have to dirty any dishes. Refuel smarter with IQ Bar's Ultimate Sampler Pack. That's seven IQ Bars, four IQ Mix sticks, and four IQ Joe sticks. And now our special podcast listeners get 20% off all IQ Bar products, plus get free shipping. To get your 20% off, just text Hysteria to 64000. Get your discount. Text Hysteria to 64000. That's H-Y-S-T-E-R-I-A to 64000. Message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. Welcome back. Let me bring in my panel for the week. Um, First up, I want to intro uh, a voice that you know, a woman I adore. She is an actor. She's a comedian. Her name is Kieran Deal. Hello, Kieran. Oh, that's me. It's you. Yes. It's you. She's an actor, comedian, writer, (laughs) activist, and a nervous little pepper. It's Grace Para. Welcome. Hello, fellow nervous little peppers. (laughs) (laughs) It's really like so apt. Um, And last but not least, with me every week, my ride or die, Alyssa Mastromonaco. Hello, Alyssa. Can I be the happy ravioli? Oh, yes. <laughs> That's cute. The happy ravioli. America's, America's ravioli. No, but America's, yeah. it's normally America's, it's not America's, I always get it wrong. It's always soulmate. I, soulmate. Oh. I get, for some reason, I always blank on soulmate. I want to, no. I always <laughs> want to say, I always want to say sweetheart. And it's like, well, <laughs> I'm not, but thanks. <laughs> Without fail, yeah. So guys, a lot has happened um, and things continue to happen in a way that feels like it's accelerating, like we're all accelerating towards some great like happening and it's it's a lot's happening. First of all, um, the, the hosts of Fox News are mad at Elmo. They're in a fight with Elmo. What? what? Yeah, so Elmo and his dad... Elmo has a dad, just FYI, did a... Uh, the potty, uh, the potty dad. That, yes. that helped him use the potty in the potty song. I've deep, yes, di- but- deep dive on this. Deep dive on this, baby. <laughs> exactly. But Elmo and his dad apparently live in different houses. This is a very confusing thing. But anyway, they did a CNN town hall about um, racism, where Elmo and his dad had a conversation that kind of mirrored a conversation that parents might have with their children about the protests and about police reform and about racism in the way that law enforcement works in the States. And of course, that made Tucker Carlson mad and also Sean Hannity mad. And now Fox News and Elmo are in a fight. So that's one place we're at right now. Um, But another place we're at is it seems like things have really changed over the last couple of weeks, like faster than I can remember. I feel like I never could have predicted watching Mitt Romney march in a Black Lives Matter march. Um, I feel like I see people that are friends, uh, loved ones who I never, ever would have thought would have been sympathetic to Black Lives Matter posting and sharing and engaging 
in um, pro-police reform, um, like using the hashtag say her name. Uh, so I'm going to start with you, Grace. Um, where have you noticed the shift most dramatically and who have you seen speak or take action in favor of Black Lives Matter that has surprised you the most? Um, you know, the shift, I think, is... It, it, it's happened primarily um, on social media from what I can tell, because we're still in the middle of a global pandemic right now and we're still indoors. And with the exception of going out to buy groceries or protest, it feels like those are the only two times that we actually see people uh, if you're still being being safe. And I, I know that, you know, there's a lot of reopenings ha now happening in states, although, of course, 19 states, I think, as of this morning are seeing increases in COVID as well, which is more. Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, it, 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 there's just this convergence of so many um, scary and yet enlightening things happening right now. But the shift I feel like has overtaken social media in a way that's at once exhilarating to see so many um, kind of unexpected voices stepping in, uh, but also terrifying. And, and I'll tell you why uh, there's a little bit of terror and fear in how I'm feeling right now, because I worry that some of this is performative. And I worry that there is social pressure for people to um, post things that are aligned with the moment and that as soon as it is safe for them to stop doing so, they will. And as soon as it's safe for, you know, white people to go back to their lives of, you know, party houses and, you know, summer vacations and, uh, you know, whatever kind of I don't know what do white people do uh, that these, <laughs> these kinds of, we can get to that later, <laughs> <laughs> that, that these kinds of things uh, are, are quickly going to return. So in other words, the momentum that I feel like we are experiencing right now is one that I, 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 that, that's the, the tone that I worry we are not going to be able to maintain uh, because I'm not sure how authentic so much of what we're seeing taking place right now, how, how much is truly authentic. And um, I had a conversation yesterday where, you know, the idea of like this movement being as inclusive as possible is, I think, totally accurate. It's never too late to say Black Lives Matter. It is never too late to say I support this movement. It's never too late to start learning what defund the police means. It's never too late to jump in. But it is, I think, too late to feel like merely stepping in and saying Black Lives Matter is enough and then feeling like, okay, I did that one thing. Now I'm going to walk away from the problem. You know, there are symbols and there are actions behind the symbols. And I think there's a lot of symbolism happening. You know, there's a lot of black spaces, black uh, uh, tiles being posted on Instagram. But what are the actions behind that? And how are we insisting that we continue um, to keep momentum flowing right now? Those are the things that, that, that worry me. Mm -hmm. Karen, has any person or group's involvement in this surprised you in a good way? Um, have you seen like a, a friend or relative like suddenly engaged that you're like, oh, I didn't, didn't expect you to be involved in this at all? On our like family WhatsApp group, you know, I have an uncle who's very political, who gets mad about everything. Um, you know, just in general, it's like a good default setting for our family rage. Um, <laughs> family rage. And, yeah. Rage is the, the deal way. Um, and he has, um, yeah, he's really come like started using the hashtag like black lives matter. And like, I think there's always been a political concern with him, but it, it's interesting to see that shift to specifically talking about like with family in England, people talking about police brutality, people getting involved with like American police brutality and being really interested in that as a cause and using that as a 
a rallying cry and something galvanizing that has spread to Manchester, Liverpool, London. Um, and, and seeing people uh, in, you know, my own family who uh, are sympathetic to something that's, you know, American, quote unquote, American. Do you know what I mean? Black Lives Matter started America, like as an American thing. And now it's become this very kind of global movement, which is really incredible. Like I find that very incredible. And I think I was talking to Para yesterday. And the thing, the thing I said for myself personally, is that I think the biggest thing I've taken out of all of this is that democracy is kind of like cleaning your house you know, it's like, like I hate cleaning. Do you know what I mean? But it's like, if you do it one time and then you just like kick it for a year, you're going to have spiders. You're, you're going to have mold. Like you, it's like, it is our job as citizens to be constantly involved in like those actions, the civic actions of, um, of petitions, of writing letters to Congress, of doing that work of democracy the same way that I clean my house or buy my groceries. This is a constant opt-in thing of participation just as a citizen, you know, mm-hmm. regardless of what, you know, work I might be doing, you know, in my career to, you know, in terms of storytelling, that's, I think that really starting to make time, whether that's every week or whatever you can do and working that into your life in terms of civic action and like, what is your responsibility as a citizen um, Mm -hmm. is, is going to be my biggest takeaway. I think over, over time. Well, well, I absolutely love the analogy that democracy is essentially like cleaning our houses, but the difference is every time. And why I think this analogy really works um, when you clean your house, you don't, post about it on social media. And it feels like every single time somebody signs a protest and some people are doing it 72 times a day and that's awesome, but it feels performative. It feels like you can donate and you can support and you can have hard conversations and you don't need to advertise it. Now, amplifying is, is I believe different, but it feels like there's a self-serving element in a lot of the, um, posts that I'm seeing. And, and that's where it gets tricky. Like, I, I, I don't know. I mean, if it makes you feel good to tell other people that you're doing these things, I guess that's fine. But I wonder if you're only doing it to, you know, to make sure people are keenly aware I'm doing these things. Black lives matter to me. I'm not racist. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, you know, it's, it's where it differs from the, um, you know, yeah. Cleaning, cleaning your house that everybody knows it. Although honestly, maybe we should be sending pictures of each other cleaning our houses because (laughs) Oh my God. Be nice to like (laughs) (laughs) Alyssa, you know, we, we all saw like, you know, you and I've kind of been talking about people that we just have never expected to register, um, their, uh, support for Black Lives Matter and police reform. Um, Do you think when you see people like Mitt Romney marching, do you think that is like, to paraphrase paraphrase Ryan Grimm, um, do you think that we should take the W when it comes to that? Or what do you think we should ask of people who are making these first steps into joining the progressive cause? So here's what I think, because I actually thought a lot about the Mitt Romney thing, and it goes a lot to what Grace was just saying, which is what is performative and what is meaningful. And I think that the way I look at it is like, what was the level of risk that you took in what you just did? Mm -hmm. And for him, 
you know, given the Trump base and how the president attacks him, like personally, I thought that what he he should be, I don't think he should be given like, oh my God, he's a savior. But I think he should be given credit for it, especially if he can bring other Republicans or people who are, you know, feel like, like I do believe that there are Republicans in the United States Senate who feel the same way as Mitt Romney, but they are too scared of Donald Trump. Right. And so Mitt Romney had zero fucks in a way. He is more independent than than a lot of these other people are both like financially wealthy so he can like fund his own campaigns, but also just sort of philosophically. And so I thought what he did, um, I thought what he did was very important. I really did. And, you know, also to Grace's point, like when you see and look, let me just for anyone who doesn't know, 44-year-old white woman here coming to you live from her closet. <laughs> and, you know, when I see when I see people who are of my ilk on uh, on Twitter who are like, here are all the things I gave up today. I'm like, girl, don't. Like, what are you doing? It's it's like, did you guys see on Twitter the performance of the good Karen? <laughs> yeah. Like yes. what good Karens can do? So like I live every day trying to not be a Karen in any form whatsoever, but it's like, do the things that you can do that help and don't, don't post for credit, right? Because guess what? If you're just sitting there posting for credit, thinking you've got some piggy bank of credit in case you say something whacked out someday, it doesn't work that way. (laughs) And so like, just try, that's why I, I just, you know, and personally also it's like, we talked about this last week. If someone is on Twitter who is saying something that I think is important and they are someone who is more directly impacted by what's happening than I am, I just retweet. I don't add my fucking two cents. It is not important right now. Mm-hmm. Um, unless it's about Ivanka. You <laughs> can't get me away <laughs> from adding my two cents about whether or not Ivanka's canceled. But um, but no, I just think that like if we're doing anything right now and we want to talk about making uh, the space for people, then like actually do it. Don't mm-hmm. post about the three good things you did today. You're still taking up space when you do that. <laughs> right. I just don't know like why this white woman is called Karen. <laughs> and as someone who went by Karen, like, living in Florida for so long. Like I was called Karen, 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 people, Karen, people can't pronounce Kieran. Karen. And yeah, exactly. And still on my to-go things, it's Karen, K-A-R-E-N. It's like on the phone. It's, is it Karen? It's Karen. So the fact that it's fucking Karen of all the names. <laughs> that has to be really bittersweet for you, Kieran, because what is. are you going to do? Complain about it? And yeah. thereby <laughs> living, living out your... your- your Karen destiny. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I want to talk about canceling a little bit, though. Um, Grace. So this past weekend, Ivanka Trump, who uh, is does some kind of a job in the White House. We still don't know what unclear, it is. Unclear. Unclear. Her unclear job in the White House was uh, invited and then disinvited to speak at a college graduation. And when she was disinvited. Um, she's, she blamed cancel culture. So Grace, does Ivanka know what cancel culture is? She, Ivanka Trump does not know what cancel culture is. She, uh, I, I think that she's been collectively, she's been canceled, but like, we're still watching reruns. That's what I, (laughs) what, like with her in particular, we just can't get enough for some reason. Um, in any other world where she isn't the daughter of the president, I, I think that we would not be listening to her. I hope. 
but yet we are. Although I guess she'd be the daughter of a purported billionaire, even if Trump hadn't won uh, the presidency. So yeah, I guess she would she would retain some sort of relevance one way or another. But man, I can't wait for the day when we don't have to talk about Ivanka Trump. I just I think she adds she adds nothing. She's funny. Did you watch this? Did you watch the speech? I, not in its entirety. I need to, but tell. Uh, I haven't in its entirety. Is that bad? No, no, nobody should wait. I mean, we have finite lives. We have Every finite lives. Minute. I was going to say, Aaron, do you realize that if you if you watch that, you never get those minutes back? <laughs> exactly. I watched it on mute and it was sort of, it gave me like Heaven's Gate cult video vibes. <laughs> there are other things that are being canceled too. I mean, Ivanka Trump wasn't a victim of cancel culture because it's not like everybody thought she was cool. And then we found this thing out about her and we were like, never mind, she's not cool anymore. Nobody ever liked her. She's not canceled. She was never on the lineup. Um, but there are some things that have been pulled um, in the wake of the social upheaval of the last couple of weeks. Um, like, the Netflix has pulled Little Britain because there's blackface in it. There have been a few resignations. Um, some people have stepped aside uh, voluntarily. Other people have stepped aside after it turns out that they were pieces of shit. Uh, like the like the uh, editor-in-chief of Bon Appetit, shockingly, mm -hmm. uh, turns out he was kind of a, a bad dude who wasn't paying people of color to make those Bon Appetit videos. Um, Kieran, what do you make of this kind of wave of people resigning or things being pulled or, you know, what do you make of like the actual kind of movement that's happening in companies and, you know, in culture right now? Okay. If I'm being optimistic, I would say that the best case scenario for the idea of cancel culture is actually positive change uh, that can occur. I, the example that comes to my mind is the CBS diversity showcase, which mm -hmm. when I did it was um, run by people who were just wildly, wildly out of line. I believe somebody said to me one time in that showcase, they go, sometimes I look at your face and you're very pretty. And other times I look and you're really quite busted and that's great for comedy. You know, what? like that's, oh my God. that's a thing that somebody who was like a, a you know, yeah. like a head of, and that was meant as a compliment, you know, or, you know, if something wasn't stereotypical, it wasn't funny. Those two people uh, lost their jobs and um, that was a result of cancel culture. And then um, the people who started running it were former writers and entertainers on um, who had, who had been a part of the showcase before, including Tien Tran, who was one of the head writers of that program. And they've actually managed, I'm, I, I, I would imagine it's not perfect, but in comparison, the, the institutional changes that they've made down to paying the performers for their time, their months on end that they're spending there, uh, has been, it sounds like it's a night and day difference in terms of, you know, and Grace, maybe you could speak to that more just because I know you actually worked on, or worked on that. But that to me is the best version of cancel culture. The danger of it is that it can be a little bit of that same like virtue signaling, or we're just calling out like this. It's like, it's a little bit of like rubbing your hands of the thing and saying like, Oh, we fixed it. We took gone with the wind off of HBO. Right. We dealt with systemic racism. We dealt <laughs> with systemic white supremacy. We did it. 
it's and, and it's also part of history. You know, I mean, there's something to be said. I think that they HBO said that they were going to put it back on because categorically it's a part of it's a part of history. Like all of this like film is has this like legacy and being able to see what we used to do, I think, is incredibly important and powerful. I mean, especially if it has context. Um, but the idea of pretending things don't exist is kind of what got us in this mess in the first place. You know, I'm quote unquote, not racist. Like the idea that like, oh, I would never do something, you know, that's, that's quote unquote racist. It's like, because racism is associated with bad in this country, as opposed to associated with systems that we're all complicit in and taking part in. I mean, those are two different narratives, like the good, bad binary, which I think like Robin D'Angelo talks about is is really problematic because it means that the conversations around race are things that we don't necessarily do in our, in our communities because, um, because the bad person is going to be the one who puts on blackface or the bad person is going to be, you know, these like signifiers of quote unquote bad. Mm -hmm. I do think to, to the, to the point of blackface, by the way, I am glad that Jimmy Fallon's been called out for his blackface sketch that he did as Chris Rock several years ago. Why aren't we calling out Lauren Michaels and SNL? I mean, he didn't do that sketch in a vacuum. And, and I don't understand with that man and that show in particular, we keep giving them a pass. Like they had Donald Trump on as a, as a host to like, you know, come on, be funny and like, you know, cavort with the cast. What was it three years ago? Mm -hmm. um, and I, I mean, but how do they, but how do you, how do you reckon with that? Like, th here's the thing, like they're not erasing it. They're not pretending it didn't happen. Right. Like, how do you, how do they like move forward as a positive force for change while also acknowledging that it's not just an in front of the camera thing, but when it comes to conversations about what Hollywood is doing to change, uh, you know, to, to shift in this moment, there is and should be a big push to cast more black actors, but there has to be an equal push to have more black executives at the studio level, at the network level, agents, people who are reading scripts, people who are harnessing um, talent at all levels. And uh, I, I think that's just as important. And, and this goes back to the question of what are we doing to sustain momentum? I mean, I'm seeing that there's a lot of, and Karen, I think you and I talked about this a little bit in our, our convo yesterday. We we're seeing a big push right now to try to be as inclusive as possible. So a lot of people are saying, hey, send me your script if you're a black writer and you haven't gotten a job yet. I want to read it. I want to try to amplify your voice. But I don't know if you guys feel the same way. From what I understand, what in my experience has been, it's not that it's the most difficult to get the first job, but it's the second job. So what are we doing once we've identified these voices, once we've even in some situations been able to finally give them a first chance, what are we doing to maintain their longevity and their careers beyond just a first opportunity? It's not, mm -hmm. again, like to, to you know, the point earlier about things being performative, it's performative when you do it once, it's habitual when you continue to to show your, uh, you know, consideration for this, for this issue. Mm -hmm. Alyssa, I wonder, what you think as a person who's been in a management position, um, how had, had you as a boss, like made efforts to be more inclusive? Um, I think that now look, and let me just preface this with, I'm not perfect. Um, I have tried very much to think about in the effort of, in the pursuit of what we were doing, whose voices would make it better. Who would, who would, whether, I mean, also let's 
be clear, my longest employment was with Barack Obama. Um, And so it wasn't anything that I even had to do specifically. It was it was understood. And this is, I think, what the problem is in so many companies is that it was expected of all of us. You know, like it was it was not something that even individually we had to take on. It was how the entire business, quote unquote, was run. Um, And so I think that couple things, though, that we did do because historically, you know, interns in the White House hadn't been that diverse. You know, they had been a lot of like white kids, the kids of donors who knew about the program, who knew how to apply. Um, And, you know, like, I think that we just that the best thing that anybody can do is just pay attention. You know, one of the things that was pretty interesting is Um, and you have to be open to feedback and not take it personally. Like, I think that's the problem too. It's like when someone came to talk to me about this, I didn't take it as a personal affront. It's like, we can all fucking do better. But what happened was because we so cared about public service that one of the requirements for being an intern was public service. And, uh, the problem is, is that if you are not wealthy, chances are you're working and you don't do public service. You don't have that chance. And so, and, and to be very honest, that was my experience. Like I was able to be an intern because I had three jobs on the side of every internship I did. Um, and so when we realized our first class of interns was not as uh, diverse, it didn't look like, as the president would say, everything we do should be reflective of the country at large. Like the White House should look like America. And and the internships didn't, it didn't. And so we had a meeting and the the first lady who also had been like, yeah, we want people who like are into public service. We realized sort of like what that hurdle, that that hurdle was classist. And, you know, if you look on Twitter now and you see the pictures that people are posting of Donald Trump's internship program and ours, um, you will see that ours was, I think, really successful in bringing in all different kinds of people. Um, However, it doesn't come without trial and error. And so that's why I think you have to be open to feedback. You have to solicit feedback because like when you're the boss, sometimes people are scared to come tell you what they think. And so for me, I think that I had two very incredible deputies who always disabused everybody of the idea that I wasn't approachable. I mean, look, I was definitely an asshole to some people who I thought were assholes, but like, I think that's fair. <laughs> um, and so they'd be like, no, no, you should go in and talk to her. Go tell her what you think. And and I tried to get feedback that wasn't filtered. Um, and that's the same thing that Barack Obama wanted. It's what the chiefs of staff always wanted. Like, I just think that there is uh, there is a way to have a hierarchical uh, structure and still have an open flow of feedback. You just have to want it. And that idea, the top down, like the top down approach, like the fact that that's coming from the top and that's Barack Obama being like, Hey, I want it to reflect the country. And for one of the big things to me is like our Congress and our Senate don't reflect what the country look like. They don't reflect the demographic experiences of what the breakdown just in terms of age, race, gender, class. It just doesn't look like what our country looks like. And what, you know, and that's the same thing for our Fortune 500 companies. That's the same thing for seats of power in this country. And unfortunately, what is the diversity of thought that is missing at the top echelons? Like even in the most well, you know, Nancy Pelosi with the cloths, it's like anti-cloth well. Yeah, it's like even the most well-meaning gestures, I think, sometimes 
when you don't have like that top down or, or some equal share in as shareholders of power at the top levels of your company, it's like, how are you going to have people who are going to be willing to come to you and to hear that advice Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. You know, well, one of one of the things too that I would encourage uh, people in businesses or who are in charge of employees. One of the greatest things that we all at the most senior level in the White House got together and decided was that, say, you're planning the State of the Union. Normally, you'd get the head of the policy department and the econ department and the national security, and everybody would sit down. But Barack Obama was very, very open to having the more junior people who actually handled very specific parts of the policy. So, you know, there was a pretty young guy, I remember he had red hair, um, who had been integral to the housing part of one of the states of the union. And he spoke up and I did not, this is, and this is like, I say this now, I'm, I'm not, at the time it was not performative. I guess me telling you about it makes it somewhat performative. But uh, the two deputy chiefs and I, Nancy Ann, we would take our seat. We would, we would not sit at the table. We would give up our seat to the junior person who could then like participate. And then they felt proud and they felt special and, and they should because they did the work. Um, but one time, uh, Barack Obama, they were having a meeting about food stamps. And this is like just, it's not a story about me. It's about him. And everyone at the table had gone to Harvard and they were all pretty wealthy and they were talking about food stamps. And I sighed loudly. I didn't mean to, but I did when they were talking and he turned around. He's like, what? And I was like, what? And he's like, what do you have to say? You have something to say. And I was like, no, it's fine. He's like, say what you have to say. And the truth is I grew up working at a grocery store and it was the only grocery store that took food stamps in like a 25 mile radius. And when you are the people who had WIC and had food stamps came through our lines and it's people aren't scamming the fucking system. And it is embarrassing and humiliating when they come through the line and they have food for their kids and they just want their kids to be able to have the same food that everybody else has. And, and these people who are forming the policy, like didn't have that experience. And so he took what I said as seriously as what like PhDs were saying. And like, sometimes you do just have to listen to the person who, uh, who has like the experience, if not the education. Mm -hmm. That's such a good point. And, and to your point about, um, a free flow of information and feedback, I think that sounds like a close to ideal work situation, but from this last like couple of weeks, it's been pretty clear that a lot of people, especially people of color, haven't been in work situations where they felt free to give feedback. Um, like I've, I noticed uh, a journalist named Prachi Gupta, for example, um, she was, she kind of like went off on her experience working at Cosmo, um, said it was just like really, you know, it was hard and you should check out her Twitter thread if you, if you're interested. But um, Kieran, I was, I wonder if you have ever been in a workplace situation in addition to the diversity showcase thing where you have felt like you wanted to speak up, but you haven't. And are there places that you still have kind of like the receipts from that you haven't spoken up about yet? Me? Yeah. You. Me? <laughs> well, just because you, you, just because you brought up that like shitty comment, it's just like, oh, I bet yeah. Kieran has like a roll the decks uh, in her head of like every time anybody says something shitty to her, I bet she's like noted. <laughs> and when you- the list, the shit list <laughs> so long. I mean, it's just like, I, like when I started working in entertainment, I like, at first I was like, 
I want to get to a point where I could like shit into someone's mouth. Do you know what I mean? Like somebody who's <laughs> fucked me over. I want to be able to shit into their mouth. And then at a certain point I had to stop keeping the list. <laughs> it got to no one person can shit that much. Oh, oh I'm capable. I'm capable of shitting that much. It's not a matter of the amount of shit, Grace. It's just, it's just... I would just, that's all I It's not a manufacturing problem. It's a distribution problem. I see. (laughs) And from a distribution problem, it's like, I just, that would be, that would be the rest of my life. Just (laughs) shitting, you know? This is so gross. We should cut this. No, I love it. I love it. I think this awesome. is some of our some of our best stuff. Um, this is the, the hard hitting material. What I was really hoping to get to the heart of today. Uh, and then you were talking about shit for four minutes. Um, Grace, have you have you kept receipts? Are there people that have treated you in ways that you're like that was fucked up? And one day I will use this information. I mean, as as Kieran mentioned, I too have been part of the CBS Diversity Showcase, notorious for just you know obliterating any sense of self confidence that um, uh, and self esteem that many diverse actors have uh, come into the showcase with over the past couple decades. Um, but there was one instance I remember distinctly where I was a writer on a show. This was many years ago, and it was one of the first shows that I wrote for a show that maybe aired like twice. Uh, I'll. Uh, see if I end up saying the name of it. Uh, it was a situation where I walked in day one and I was like, oh, I am the diversity hire and everybody knows it because it was me and 12 other white people, I think most of whom were over the age of 45 and you know, 90% of them were, were men as well. So uh, the incident in particular that I'm about to reference is about um, a character who was a straight man who dressed up like a woman to get a job because he couldn't get a job as a dude. So he's like, oh, I'll dress up like a woman and then I'll get a job that way. <laughs> and uh, so this is a, this is like this character's thing through the whole, the, the whole season. And um, so much of the show was about with a, a, a terrible premise, first of all. Second, um, much of the show was about him feeling like ashamed of the transition that his body would take when he had to put on women's clothes and how like, you know, just the, the hijinks involved in that, whatever. Um, and the discomfort of wearing women's clothes. And so at some point I remember pitching and that, by the way, that the actor is, a, a Latino. And so at some point I pitched, well, what if he like embraces it? What if he likes it? Like, what if there's an episode, you know, or an arc where he's like, you know what? I, this is awesome. I love it. I feel like I'm learning more about my body by dressing uh, in women's clothes. This is great. And I was shut down immediately by an older white male who said, yeah, but dudes don't like that body type. So, Ooh. yeah. Yeah. The, the idea being that dudes, straight white men don't enjoy the body types of curvy Latinas, curvy African-American women. That's not a body type. That's ideal. So, and then, and and nobody said, nobody said anything. The conversation moved on. And I've always kept that in my mind as like, oh yeah, I guess I was, uh, you know, first of all, like uh, apart from the, the, the fact that it's so deeply transphobic and so problematic in that area, it's also so deeply racist to, you know, criticizes women's bodies in that way to argue that there are certain body types that men don't like. And as a result, if men don't like those body types and they don't deserve to have any sort of presence on camera, I mean, the whole thing was, was a disaster. And that was emblematic of the whole experience. Uh, I've certainly, certainly thought about that a lot in the last few years, especially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The, The kind of like, but that microcosm of an incident, it's like such a, it sounds like, I think the thing to get, 
through is that that sounds like such a small moment, but that small moment is emblematic of like who the gatekeeper is, who gets to say that that's true. Do you know what I mean? Who gets to say that that body doesn't get, isn't worth celebrating or the person who gets to say like the fact that there's no one in, in the room who has experience with food stamps. It's like these, it's like people need to be in the room with a diverse level of perspectives so that it's not one person from one opinion that is dictating what everything else looks like in a gatekeeper position. And then deciding essentially for the rest of us that I quote unquote, didn't just respond to that material. Do you know what I mean? Like I just didn't respond. I just don't respond to that body type. I just don't respond or this doesn't make sense to me. You're going to be less likely to have those kinds of, of, um, problems when you have a a top-down diversity. And, and the question is, how do you get people at the top to really want to opt into that consistently? Because I do think a lot of people just don't care if they are already sitting in seats of power. Not everyone was working in, you know, Alyssa and Barack Obama, you know, like in that, in that white house, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. so how do you get Lauren to give a shit or whatever? I think a lot, I think a kind of slow realization that a lot of people are having is, um, that in order for, look, the top isn't infinitely large. And in order to make room at the top, some people need to move out of the way and either they're going to move out of the way because somebody is going to replace them without really their consent, uh, or they're going to willingly move out of the way, like the board member of Reddit who resigned to make room for a candidate of color. Um, I think that's an uncomfortable thing that a lot of people are going to have to reckon with. Like as, you know, these protests started with just like acknowledging the humanity of black people and the way that law enforcement abuses them. Um, And it is expanded into a conversation that we've been trying to have for a long time, which is that, you know, how do we make sure that the power structures in this country reflect the people in this country? Because until it does, there is no way that the power structures will actually serve the people in this country. And, you know, and, and piggybacking off of that, the only way that that that's going to happen is if some people get out of the way. And that's, I I feel like that is a a thing that white people are like a little bit uncomfortable. I can't speak for white people because I am not uncomfortable with it because I am like minimally powerful. But I think about people who are like, you know, sitting on corporate boards or people who are, you know, uh, involved in charities uh, that are high profile and people that have like these big fancy titles, like, there is going to have to be an ab like an abdication or people moving aside. So like, how do we get to that place? So here's what I would just once say about this real quick, uh, is that when people do do it, I think that like there does not in any way need to be a parade, but I think that if someone has had a position that they have enjoyed or whatever, it gets them a lot of money and they're like, you know what, I'm going to step back and I'm going to make sure that someone else has the opportunity to have the experience I had. I think it is a little hard when it's hard to create the, um, it's hard to create the sort of, um, 
space for people to do that if then they also kind of get criticized for it. It's like, if you, if I were on a board of something and I stepped back to make, and specifically said, here is someone who I think has a voice that should be heard and who should take my spot. If people then yell at me and we're like, well, you're fucking privileged and you have, you could step back because you can do that. And it's like, but like, if we criticize people for even doing that, then it's not going to encourage other people to do it too. And so like I'm saying, like it doesn't have to be a parade and people don't have to just fucking post on Instagram all the things they're doing. But I mean, when someone does do it, I think it's like maybe they shouldn't like get yelled mm-hmm. at for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, take the W. Take the W. Just take the W. The other question is, how is are there are there alternate schemas of uh, how we break down power in this country? which I think that the conversation about, you know, policing has really opened up with that movement about defunding the police. There was a man from a center for policing center for policing. Um, there was a man, Philip Goff from center for policing equity, who spoke at a thing I was at on Saturday. And I learned so much about like, just the notion, I didn't know that the vast majority, it's like 80, 80 to 90% of the police force is essentially um, personnel. It's not, it's mm. not weapons. It's not militarization. So if you were going to like take resources from that community, and he said on a lot of inner city communities, it's like people overwhelmingly do want to keep some police. But what if like when you call a number and you need a social worker, you get a social worker and not the police. What if there's a domestic violence altercation and you can call someone who is an expert in that. If there's a mental health issue, you call someone who's an expert in that instead of expecting our police to do all of that work. Or like, I think on John Oliver's show, there were like loose dogs in Houston. And there's a clip where like the police chief is like, is like, and now the police are chasing loose dogs. And it's like, we don't have the bandwidth for this shit. And it's not a fair thing to ask of them. So my, I guess my other question would be, it's like with the UN, when they wanted to get women involved, there was like a resolution, I think it was like 1592 or something, where if you want to get women involved in leadership roles for negotiation, because that's how you get better at negotiating, each person was allowed to add a woman to the team And like, you can either have a woman or like not have an extra person, you know? And so I think that there are, there are, and listen, I'm not a policy expert or a leadership expert, but my guess is that there are a number of systems that would be a way to, to shift the way that we think about boards or shift the way that we think about power so that maybe it wouldn't have to be such a necessary abdication. Maybe there's, maybe there's a mm-hmm. different schema that we can look at in terms of what that distribution looks like. So this, this, mm-hmm. I, that, that's a brilliant point, by the way. And I think that it's also why the eight can't wait, um, the, the like frenzy over must support eight can't wait because it's the first thing that, that came out of the gate and everybody like, yes, we got to get behind it. And then uh, in subsequent hours and days, it, it was, I, I think people spent a little more time parsing what it actually meant and realizing maybe this is a step, but not the right step. Maybe this is not as fully conclusive a movement as we could be making right now, uh, which I think showcases the fact that there is a kind of frenetic energy that we feel right now to get some sort of solution out and to be as active as possible as we can right now. But to Kieran's point, how can we take a step back, though there is an urgency right now, and be as thoughtful and thorough with the the way that we're educating ourselves to really create long-lasting change? And that I don't, I don't know what the solution is for that because it does feel like, again, this is an urgent problem. We cannot sit back and wait for years until policymakers decide, okay, we've got it. 
70 years after the George Floyd protest, we finally got it. Let's get, let's get to work. <laughs> and that's not, that's not going to work. And, and that's been the beauty of the last couple of weeks that we've seen the urgency portrayed in these mass demonstrations across the globe. And I think, we, I think universally we have an understanding about that, but I don't know how you compromise that urgency with a real, a real intellectual need to be as thorough as possible to see what additional, you know, what alternate paths uh, to, to kind of restructuring that, that exists or that we have to create. I mean, it's, I feel like you're really illustrating the importance of having differing views at the table, like people who really want to get it done right now and people who are going to slow it down a little bit. Like, and I just was thinking as you were talking um, that, you know, how much this country has suffered by not having a viable conservative party that actually can engage in thoughtful debate and how much better off we would be if more, you know, if there was some sort of coherence to like the conservative viewpoint and how we could get so much more done in a way that felt like it was a real compromise that was coming from a place of people caring about the country rather than just caring about power. Um, we have to end this conversation, even though we could probably go on for days. And also like, I never talk to anybody anymore. So it's great. To see your face. <laughs> I, know. Uh, I wanna, I wanna end with this. Uh, CNN released a poll showing that 84% of the people that they, uh, they asked um, view the protest as justified. That is up from 67% during the 2016 black lives matter protests. And uh a conservative pollster named Frank Luntz said that in his 35 years of polling, he's never seen an opinion shift this fast. So shit is happening. That's awesome. It's going down. And that is exciting. It is awesome. It's great. It's an exciting time to be alive, even though sometimes it is confusing <laughs> and a little bit scary. But this is exciting. I'm excited about it. Um, thanks for sticking around for this conversation, guys. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, Sanity Corner. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. And welcome back. This is the part of the show where we talk about the ways that we are staying sane during these unstable times it's sanity corner um who wants to go first i'll go okay grace go i actually don't know if anyone's done my sanity corner yet because this woman is absolutely everywhere and i'm loving her so much have you guys seen sarah cooper's videos yes sarah cooper is the comedian who takes donald trump uh uh like sound clips and does her own like little TikTok like videos to them and it is the most illuminating hilarious thing in the world she is bringing so much sanity to my life i uh, love her and as an extra sandy corner i'll also say that i am watching what we do in the shadows the show the movie's amazing but the show on fx is fucking awesome it is just vampires doing funny weird vampire things it is such a departure from everything that's happening in the world and around us and it is keeping me very sane that's awesome. I watched like mm -hmm. one episode of that and I was like, this is hilarious. I should watch more. And then I forgot. Yeah. So Grace, I will watch true more. story. I was yeah. DMing with Sarah Cooper yesterday because <gasps> no. her, yes, because her 
impersonation of Donald Trump speaking to lobstermen is hands down one of the funniest things I have ever seen. And I just had to DM her and be like, girl, I got to tell you, you fucking just made me laugh out loud. It was so I I could not co-sign that more. Dude, we should should get her on the show. She's (gasps) yes. I was thinking, yes, I'll DM her. Do it. Yes. I would love it. Let's get her on the show. That would be great. Yes. yes, That's how how this works. We just mention it. We're like, hey, let's do this. And then we do it because (laughs) we're accomplishers. Okay, Kieran, uh, what's your sanity corner this week? Okay, I had two. They're kind of they're kind of the a little bit of the opposite of grace. Well, so in a in an un, in an insane time, it's like you can either laugh or you can go with people who are hella calm, hella calm. So I'm a big fan. I don't know if you guys know Thich Nhat Han. Do you know Thich Nhat Han? He is a, a I think he's a Nobel Peace Prize nominee who was friends with Martin Luther King, who's this Buddhist who's been around forever. He's like over 80, 85, and he is so great. Oh, you'll love him. He's the best. He's like a hug as a person. He's written so many books and it's like, he is, he's, he's great. He's, he, it's like for every single person that you ever, you know, encounter that you're like, oh, you're full of shit. It's like, he, you're, you'll just, you'll be like, oh, that guy's like the real thing. Thich Nhat Hanh is amazing. Um, and just has a very, has been involved in like even just social justice stuff for you know all of his life like was i think a protester in like vietnam or whatever like just really very like really walk the walk so he's amazing um and then i also really like um and i'm sure a lot of people have already mentioned this one but robin d'angelo um if you listen to her speak in her youtube videos she is so um measured and thoughtful and i think does a beautiful job of like presenting an argument in a way that's, um, that's been really amazing and, and, and adds a lot of the hard work of thinking, the thinking work of, you know, some things that, you know, I haven't dealt with policing before this. I haven't really thought about policing, but the guy from center for policing equity has remembering that there's all these other great thinkers and people out there who have been dedicating their lives to this and seeing somebody doing that. Um, I find gives me sanity. Awesome. Um, Alyssa, what's yours? Well, you guys, I, I continue how to learn to work with my hands and fix things myself. Um, to just yesterday, my husband was like, Hey, do you know the light fixture? And I was like, I'm on it. I got it. I'll take care of it. Um, so I am fixing things. I am out there saving our plants one day at a time. I've talked about this a lot because of the watering, but also I am legitimately starting a jam business. Um, oh yeah, I'm doing a budget. I have spreadsheets. I have designed (laughs) labels because you guys I don't know when we're ever coming back to normal. I don't know when anyone's mm-hmm. ever going to hire a fucking political consultant again. So I got to do something. So these hands are cutting fruit, fucking stirring it 24 hours, 36 hours, 48 hours, because we're not using sugar. We're doing like Ma Ingalls and the Pioneers. We cook it down. So we need less sugar because sugar was fucking expensive back then. And uh, mm. it's more delicious and you get the real pectin out of your fruit. So Please stay stay tuned for my Etsy shop. <laughs> what, what what kind of what kind of fruit? I need to know what kind oh, of jam. Oh, so are in well, my Grace. Let's just be clear, okay? I only do seasonal because seasonal's the best. So, as a matter of fact, I will post later. I just this morning finished my two day cook 
three boils for my strawberry jam from Mrs. Eager's fruit stand down the street. And uh, I have to say, there are some local businesses that are interested in my jams because I'm telling you, they're really good. I, I will say this. It's like on the, on the, his, on the happy hour, the Zoom happy hour, which Grace missed. Oh, yes. It's like, right. I yeah, like, I'm sorry. Yeah, Grace missed that. So I was like, this is the perfect. I, did miss I, it. I expected nothing less. It's like from that Zoom I, happy you hour guys, where you were showing us your jams. This is exactly what I would expect, Alyssa. We have to find our be... purpose. We have to find our purpose where we can find it. <laughs> Perfect progression. Oh my gosh. Does your house, I bet all of your sweaters smell like Candyland. I bet your house smells amazing. <laughs> you guys, when I was five years old, I wrote a short story called My Candyland Dream. I might be living it. <laughs> you are living it. Oh my God. Wow. You manifested this. <laughs> you took, you, you know, like when life hands you le- lemons, make lemon preserves marmalade. and sell them. Um, marmalade. Awesome. Marmalade. Yeah. Okay. Guys, I have a rave review. Um, I, most of the things that I watch or read, I don't like, I, I don't give anything really a 10 out of 10, but this I will give a 10 out of 10. Whoa. Um, yeah. Oh. Michaela Cole is a British writer, comedian, actor. She has a new show that is on HBO called I May Destroy You. Uh, only the pilot is available right now. It is like a drama comedy about the sort of like millennial condition. It is one of the best things I've seen maybe in the last two years. It is, and that includes like incredible things. Like, uh, I would include that up there with like, when I saw parasite, how I felt after I watched parasite, like, Oh my God, this is so good. After I watched the dinner party episode of Fleabag, same, same deal. It's like so good. I will say that it is, um, I mean, it's, it's super funny. She's hilarious. Um, it's shot in a really cool way. Um, it's like really dense with like jokes and plot, but it doesn't feel overstuffed. I will say that there is like a, uh, there's like a date rape in it. So like, it's, it's not like super explicit or anything like that, but if that's something you're sensitive to, um, you would probably, you might want to avoid it, but it is honestly one of the best things. If you have HBO, like watch it, like stop what you're doing and watch it. It is so, so good. So I have to be honest. I know that you are a tough critic. You're a tough judge. And I saw you talk about it. And then Dana said that she was stopping what she was doing to watch it. So I have added it to my my rotation. It's up next. Yeah. Dana finished it and immediately texted me like, oh, my God, it's it's good. (laughs) It's good. And Josh and I sometimes have like divergent opinions about movie and television. We had at least a dozen fights, like full on fights about the Joker, like actual <laughs> fights. Um, but when we finished watching the first episode of I May Destroy You, we both turned to each other and we were like, oh my God, it's so good. So I couldn't recommend it more. She's, uh, Michaela Cole's great. I can't wait. I can't wait. Um, okay, well, that's all the time we have uh, for this week's Hysteria. Thank you to Alyssa, Grace, and Kieran for hanging out with me. Thank you to Professor Kimberly Crenshaw for talking to me and for all of the incredible work she's done and continues to do. And thank you to all of you for listening. There will be more Hysteria for you next week. Hysteria is a product of Crooked Media. Caroline Reston is our producer. Our editor is Sarah Barrett, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thank you to Juliet Beckstrand for production support and to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Nadina Malkonian for filming and editing our video content every week. Girls to the front, to the front, to the front. 
Best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. <laughs> 